welcome to the Napoleon Podcast, episode number 12. It's been a bit of a break for those of you who are listening to us uh, live as we record them, I guess, as opposed to listening to them after the event, which in the case it probably makes no sense. But anyway, it's been about uh, six weeks since we've talked about Napoleon J. David Markham. How are you, my friend? I'm doing well, but it's really hard to believe that it's been six weeks. Uh, that's that's just amazing, and, and I apologize to to our uh, loyal and faithful listeners uh, for making them uh, wait this long. But uh, as as I'm sure everybody realizes, uh, you and I each have uh, uh, other other engagements, other jobs, other things we have to do, and. And uh, it's, uh, it's sometimes tough to fit this in, but I'm glad to be back. And, uh, of course, this is the first time we're actually recording the show in the same country. I'm actually on the west coast of the U.S. Uh, for a month. And uh, next week, well, in a couple of days, actually, we're uh, also going to be in the same town and might even do a podcast together face-to-face, which will be a lot of fun. Well, it is. It's it's a week from this coming uh, Sunday. Uh, today's the 26th, and we're talking about the uh, third or fourth, whichever day that is. Uh, and uh, that should be a great deal of fun. It's it's really almost hard for me to to uh, get a handle on the idea that you're now in the same time zone as I am. That it's uh, 22 minutes after five uh, where you are, and 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 where I am here, and it's the same day. Uh, that's what's really interesting. Uh, uh, for those of you who, who haven't given that much thought, it's, it's one of the sort of interesting little things we have to deal with uh, if we write to each other on email and say, uh, well, how about next Thursday? We have to clarify uh, Thursday uh, in Australia or Thursday in, in Olympia, Washington. And uh, uh, one side seems to me we actually were, we, we almost had a snafu where, where we were each ready on Thursday, but it was the uh, wrong Thursday. <laughs> so let's get on with the show. Um, as hopefully people will still remember, uh, in the last episode, we sort of covered the period from the Treaty of Lunaville in 1801, when uh, through a series of successful battles, Napoleon was able to sign peace treaties uh, finally with every country in Europe. And he even managed to sign a peace treaty with Britain, the Treaty of Amiens, he was made first consul for life in 1802. And then at the end of the last episode, we talked about how the Treaty of Amiens failed and Britain declared war on France in 1803. And that brings us to this episode. And in our couple of chats and preparation, we thought it was finally time when we reach the uh, one, of, one of, I guess, the highlights of the whole Napoleonic story to some people. And to some of his contemporaries, it was probably the major turning point when they started to frown against Napoleon. And I'm, of course, talking about the coronation when Napoleon became emperor. So why don't you start to... We, we talked a little bit about the infernal machine last time and the uh, how that led to the execution of the Duc d'Anguillon and uh, how you know Napoleon and his advisers Talleyrand and and uh, Fouché the police minister and, and a number of others were suggesting that well you know if you're the first consul for life and they kill you then they can bring back the bourbons or you know a, another king but if 
you are royalty and there is a, a line of descendants who can take your place, then maybe the assassination attempts will be all for naught and they will stop doing it. What, what, what were some of the other reasons that led to the idea of uh, re-establishing a monarchy in France? Well, I think you've really uh, touched on it quite well, uh, Cameron. Uh, the, 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 the basic problem was that it was becoming more and more clear to to Napoleon and and to everybody in France that the rest of Europe and Great Britain in particular uh, was simply not going to to leave things alone, uh, and that there was likely to be a constant uh, a state of war uh, between France and 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 at least some of the other countries of Europe again, especially Great Britain, <clears throat> and that indeed uh, because of that and because of the increasingly uh, uh, increasing possibility of assassination attempts, uh, that France was in danger of of losing her leader. And one reason that France was in danger of, of losing her leader was the, the fact that if Napoleon were to die, there was really uh, no direct uh, and obvious line of, of succession, and there was a great fear on the part of many, especially the Republicans, the, the, the old uh, uh, supporters of the revolution, the old Jacobin and others, uh, whose biggest fear was that somehow the Bourbon dynasty uh, would be reestablished. Uh, these were the people that Napoleon really had to to win over. He wasn't going to win over the 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 royalists, the people who wanted the Bourbons to be back. Other other than that, some of them might be be pleased that there was at least some some kind of a a, a royal or imperial government established. Uh, and 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 he didn't have to worry too much about the 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 broad middle class. Uh, he was so extraordinarily popular with the the great bulk of of people uh, in in France that he really could have done pretty much what he wanted to do. But the the Republicans, the revolutionaries, uh, were suspicious. They they were a bit nervous uh, about all of the stuff that had happened. First Council for Life, uh, and so on. And Napoleon's First Council begins to act more and more like royalty, or like he had an imperial court. His his dress uniforms and his 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 uh, formal. Uh, uh, attire tended to get fancier and fancier, and and some of the protocols that, that were established uh, were were very very imperial like uh, protocols. Uh, and the Republicans were were suspicious; they weren't sure they liked all of this. Uh, and then, of course, uh, we get to the infernal machine and some of the other events that we've talked about in in the past, and. The Republicans begin to realize they've got Napoleon or they've got their Bourbons. And, and that's it. And Napoleon is a heck of a lot better than the Bourbons, of course. Uh, and so very quickly, really, uh, virtually all of France begins to unite around the idea 
that Napoleon uh, needs to to take one further step. Uh, and this was very important to Napoleon because he always made it clear uh, to people that he was not going to attempt to gain any additional power uh, or take any additional steps to uh, to consolidate uh, his position or to to lengthen his position that did not have the support of the people. He understood fully uh, uh, the French Revolution, the implications of the revolution, which was that if you lose the will of the people, you you could lose your head. Uh, and so uh, he was very careful, stage by stage, step by step, to make sure that the that the people uh, were were behind him, uh, and and they were. Uh, so the question becomes, what are they going to do? Uh, somebody, I'm, I'm sure, suggested, uh, well, let's just make you a king. Uh, but that that was that was not going to fly, obviously, and Napoleon had none of it because uh, that would imply. Uh, too much uh, of a situation like the Bourbons that would that would imply uh, a return to a system and, and an image that that uh, was really pretty ugly in the in the minds of most people. Uh, an emperor, however, now there's a possibility. Uh, one of the the great leaders in French history, uh, Charlemagne, Charlemagne. Uh, was was an emperor, and an emperor uh, implies uh, something different than than a king. It implies uh, that you are there based more on your abilities than on uh, some kind of hereditary uh, entitlement. Uh, and indeed, uh, people were already talking about the French Empire uh, as as the borders had expanded and as a uh, French hegemony uh, moved into uh, to Italy for example and so on uh, the idea of of some of the ruler of France uh, also ruling an empire had, had already taken root in in, in people's minds uh, and they also understood that that he would become emperor uh, based on two things uh, number one, and far, by far the most important was his talent. Napoleon ruled by virtue of his ability. He had no heritage to fall back on. He had no familial ties to fall back on. He was who he was uh, because of the abilities that he had shown the, the French people. And then based on that, the second way he would justify his rule would be that the people of France uh, were in favor of it. And, and indeed, by 1804, it was pretty clear uh, that uh, it was time in the minds of the people for Napoleon to be emperor. And this would do a couple of things. One thing it would do, of course, would be to put him sort of, in theory at least, on the same level as the kings and emperors uh, that ruled other countries. Uh, he would seem uh, ever bit as regal as they were. He would, he would have the same title. He would have the same kind of protocols and so on. And therefore, he would somehow be at their level. And, of course, there was the question of an heir. Once you become an emperor, uh, you, it's set up so that your son 
can take over uh, if you are killed uh, or if you die. Now, he doesn't have a son at this point, but the assumption was fairly clear that he and Josephine would in time have a son and that uh, that son would, in fact, eventually become the emperor of, of, of the French. Even uh, though at this point they'd been married for six or seven years and hadn't conceived? Well, that's right. They had, they, they had been uh, married uh, for quite some time and, and hadn't conceived, and there's no question that in the minds of some people uh, an eyebrow was being raised and, and doubts were being being expressed. Uh, uh, but I think that there was still the feeling that, that okay, in, in time this will happen. And there were other options that that were explored and we will probably talk about these uh, uh in, in a different uh, program uh when we talk about uh his, his divorce and so on uh, but there were the possibility there's a possibility of for example uh, uh adoption uh and uh you know that was that was certainly something that could happen his uh of Josephine's his, children or of something well else? Well, uh, Napoleon's brother, Louis, uh, and Josephine's daughter, Hortense, uh, were married and, and had uh, given uh, birth to a boy. Uh, and there was a, a lot of talk that, uh, that, that in fact they would just simply adopt that, that, uh, a child and, and since it had the blood of both of them, uh, would, would, that child would be a legitimate, uh, heir to the throne. Uh, however, the boy died in 1807, which is why I thought we might catch it later, uh, and, uh, that, raises again the, the, the issue of succession. And of course, by 1807, now they've been married for 11 years, and uh, there, there's no way that, that anyone believes uh, that Napoleon and Josephine are going to have a son. And, and to jump ahead a little bit, and we'll cover it in greater detail, but no one out there is going to be surprised to hear that, uh, that uh, Napoleon and Josephine will, of course, eventually divorce, primarily because of that issue, uh, particularly after uh, Napoleon and Marie Valeska uh, his Polish mistress, uh, in fact, do have a son, thus laying the 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 responsibility for a childless marriage uh, fairly clearly on Josephine. Now, Napoleon also obviously saw himself as being in the tradition of <coughs> military political leaders such as Julius Caesar, and he. Yeah, he liked to model a lot of things on the Roman Empire as well as Alexander as well. But I'm thinking just in terms of getting back to the empire, the, the structure of the, the French Empire, there was a lot of... Uh, he, I mean, he was obviously a very big reader of Caesar's campaigns and studied them, studied Rome, etc., didn't he? Oh, certainly. He, he was very much aware of this, and, and one of the reasons why the uh, French adopt the eagle, <clears throat> excuse me, as one of their symbols, the imperial eagle of the uh, French Empire is an obvious uh, 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 symbol to relate to the imperial eagle of, of the Roman Empire. Uh, but it, it, more than Rome, I think, is it, it, he's thinking in terms of, of Charlemagne. <clears throat> He's tying himself to to Charlemagne, and and it's really ironic. Uh, uh, you know the 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 empire. Uh, you know I, I think I say in 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 the book I call him a Republican emperor, uh, which sounds like a contradiction. Uh, this was uh, 
in a sense, a, a as Jean Toulard, uh, the, the very famous French uh, historian, Napoleonic historian, says, uh, this is first and foremost a dictatorship of public safety uh, designed to preserve the achievements of the revolution. Uh, and that's the, the great irony in order to preserve what had been gained under the revolution and the Napoleonic aftermath up through the consulate, uh, the the French people and, and French leadership uh, believed uh, that they really, in fact, had to uh, have uh, an, an emperor, uh, and and the 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 Senate of uh, France uh, overwhelmingly approved, uh, asking Napoleon to uh, accept. Uh, the 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 crown as uh, emperor of the French and and that's a, a a slight distinction people should be sure to make he was not the emperor of France he was the emperor of the French which which uh, again steps back a little bit from something like the king of France he's the emperor of not a country but of a people. And he's an emperor of a people who have asked him to be their emperor and who approve of what he is doing. And that's that's a, a symbolically very important distinction. So symbolically, then, it's not saying that I own all of the land and it belongs to me. It's that I have been appointed to lead the people, which I think is a is a is a terrific distinction and one that I hadn't thought about before. Well, it's a it's a very important distinction uh, that that I think we need we we need to make when we think about Napoleon and when we think about whether or not it was a good thing or a bad thing for Napoleon to become an emperor and and is this really a contradiction uh, to the republican values that he uh, professed uh, and to the the republican values indeed of the revolution and 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 the consulate uh, and and I would argue. That although it seems perhaps rather odd, uh, that it is not a contradiction. Uh, that it was a relatively logical step forward, and it was certainly a step made on the basis of need. In a perfect world, uh, it would have been better for Napoleon to stay as council. Uh, if the peace of Amiens had held uh, after the infernal machine and and the Duc de Anguin episode, which Probably would have quieted the the efforts on his life, and he he did have the right to name a successor. Although that's uh, that's a lot less of a sure thing than than, than having a hereditary arrangement. Uh, but uh, you know, in the perfect world, yeah, it might have been better for him to remain as consul. Uh, most of us think of the period of the consulate as as the the. The highlight of Napoleon's career in many ways. We, we are enamored with the trappings and the glory of the empire and of Napoleon as emperor. And, and, uh, you know, if we want to drink a toast to Napoleon, we, 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 we say vive l'empereur, you know, long live the emperor. Uh, but that said, I, I think in many ways we, we, we sort of wish that somehow it had been possible for the consulate period to have simply uh, extended on. But that would have required peace. And Napoleon wanted peace. The French people wanted peace. I would suggest that the people of Europe wanted peace. But the leaders of other countries, and especially uh, those of Great Britain, uh, did not want peace. And, 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 and they wouldn't have it. And so off we go to the coronation. Well, just one last thing, uh, point on that. I, I think it's, it's often hard for 
those of us living in uh, the 21st century, particularly in you know uh, Western countries such as America and Australia, to really put ourselves into the shoes of people living in Europe in the early 19th century, who had you know been living under monarchical systems uh, for you know thousands of years, and under the feudal system and, and monarchies for thousands of years. And I, I do remember have reading in a number of uh, books where Napoleon talked about the amount of change that the French had gone through since the beginning of the revolution and that there was a desire on behalf of them to return to some of the symbolism and traditions that were associated with being part of a monarchy. And I, and I think that's hard for, for me to grasp, having grown up in a country like Australia, but I can kind of understand how there were, you know, things like a court and, and, and festivals, etc., that people had grown up with, they were very used to this, and all of a sudden, all of the uh, social traditions and cultures had been eradicated by the revolution, the bad with some that they may have considered good and positive, and that this was in some ways bringing back a sense of normality to the lives of the French. Would you agree with that? Well, I think that's a good point. Uh, th- there was a, a, a return to a sense of normality and, and, and perhaps a, a better word might almost mean a sense of stability. Uh, for one thing, okay, we have an empire now, we have an emperor. Uh, there's really no place to go beyond that, so we've progressed, if that's the word you want to use, and, and, and I think most of the French people would have used that. We have progressed to the the ultimate expression of Napoleon's power, the ultimate expression of uh, the the support on the part of the people of France for Napoleon. Uh, we've given Napoleon the ultimate tool with which to deal uh, with with our, our our opponents and our friends in Europe, uh, to wit, the the fact that he is now on their level in terms of his title. Uh, many many people uh, professed at least to to be distrustful of a republic, and they they didn't like the revolutionary government, and they question you know Napoleon's legitimacy. Okay, fine. Uh, you all understand empire. You all understand emperor. Uh, you all understand that that emperors eventually are, are, are initially at least are usually selected by the people or by some organ that represents the people. Uh, and, and in this case, that was the Senate and, and, and also a uh, publicite. And, and later, as, as we'll see, uh, he even brings the Pope into the action. Uh, so, you know, it'd be really difficult for you folks to claim uh, any longer that I am not legitimate as the leader of my country and my people. So let's deal with it and let's see if we can't uh, uh, operate uh, together and, and seek peace. And it worked to some extent. Uh, I think that when he was uh, dealing, for, for example, with uh, Francis of, of uh, Austria, particularly later on when they're when they're dealing with the the, the marriage to uh, Marie Louise, uh, I think the fact that he was emperor probably uh, made uh, that arrangement more likely, uh, and so on. But but we also know that ultimately it was unsuccessful. Uh, in the sense that the wars continued, and eventually Napoleon uh, uh, will 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 be overwhelmed militarily. And speaking of militarily, that's another element uh, to his legitimacy. 
He is known by even his enemies as a great military leader at this stage. Uh, Charlemagne was a great military leader. You mentioned Caesar, of course, who, who made his name and achieved his power. He wasn't emperor, but he achieved his power, uh, through, through his military means. Uh, and, and, uh, you also mentioned Alexander the Great, who, who was a hereditary king, uh, but whose claim to fame and, and, and ability to hold on to power, of course, was, was, was his military uh, success and prowess. So, so Napoleon has joined a long line of successful military people who gain enormous popularity with their people uh, and are rewarded as a result of that popularity uh, with uh, ultimate power. And uh, so the, Napoleon was sitting pretty good. Uh, he, he has all of these things, and, and, he, and he has one more thing uh, to boot, and, and that is uh, the, the Pope. Uh, it's a, a real controversy. Uh, with Napoleon's uh, coronation both then and now uh, when it comes to the role uh, of the Pope. Now, you've got to remember a few things here. And number one, you've got to remember that, that, that France is, is, is overwhelmingly a, a Catholic country. What is then is now. Uh, the average people of France, uh, uh, every person in France was Catholic. Yeah, that's, that's number one. Number two, the French Revolution had been, to a very significant extent, an anti-clerical revolution, which is to say it was brought on at least in part by a revulsion on the part of the people against uh, the Catholic Church uh, and, 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 and the church in particular. Not necessarily the religion, but the church. The church leadership from the Pope on down uh, was seen as corrupt and self-serving. Uh, is seen, you know, the, 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 the priests were chasing after young ladies and young gentlemen, uh, as, as we've, we've seen something along that line in some of the scandals recently. Uh, and, and you, the, the people, uh, were, were, were fed up with it. The church was seen as, as being a represent, representative and a, a supporter of the status quo, of the wealthy, of the royalty, over the needs of the people. So you've got kind of a contradiction here. Okay, we're Catholic, but we really don't like the Catholic Church, and we've booted the Catholic Church out. We've replaced it with a secular uh, religion, uh, and that's all well and good, but there's still this this sense on the part of a lot of people we'd like to get the church back and so you and I talked already uh, about the uh, concordat uh, the the rapprochement between uh, the catholic church and the pope with uh, napoleon uh, where the church was allowed back in uh, but under restrictions they were no longer the absolute power uh, napoleon had the right to select uh, much of the church hierarchy uh, but nevertheless the pope was back catholicism was back the the churches cathedrals were reopened and that was unpopular with the revolutionaries but it was very popular with most people uh, in, in, in France. Uh, and uh, uh, so Napoleon would like to get the church involved, uh, Pope Pius VII, uh, but he's got a problem. 
he still has a lot of these folks who are not very happy uh, with the Concordat. Uh, he still is representing a revolution that has made France more uh, secular. And he, he has a little bit of history. Uh, you go back to, to uh, Charlemagne, uh, and in particular you go back to uh, Charles Martel and Pepin and so forth, where, where the Pope consecrated them as emperors and thus making the Pope appear to be more powerful and above uh, the secular leaders. Uh, and, and when 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 the Pope uh, uh, made Charlemagne the the Holy Roman Emperor on Christmas Day in the year 800, <coughs> uh, Charlemagne later said this was a terrible mistake for that very reason. So Napoleon would like to get the Church involved, but he also has to make it rather rather obvious to everybody that he is Emperor with the the support of the church, but not necessarily uh, because of the church or the church's blessing. Uh, so they they bring the pope in, and 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 the pope is of course delighted to be a part of all of this, because this, no matter how they use him, from his point of view, it's going to add to the pope's and therefore the church's legitimacy in France. It's bringing back the church at the very uh, highest. Uh, Levels, And it's going to help Napoleon because the average Frenchman out there who loves Napoleon and also, you know, likes the Pope uh, now, now is going to, to, to be even more likely to support uh, Napoleon. And just to carry the symbolism further, they decide that they will hold the coronation in Notre Dame, the great Catholic uh, uh, cathedral uh, in uh in, 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 in Paris. And no, no less than the artist Jacques Louis David, uh, is, 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 is sent in to, uh, <coughs> excuse me, to decorate the place. Uh, he, he designs all of the decorations. They, they build false walls to cover up some of the columns and so forth. And they make it into quite a, a spectacle. There's, uh, practices, uh, there's there's some very famous uh, paintings of Napoleon and Josephine and 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 the various advisors uh, looking at a table where they've got each of the individuals and they're moving them around like chess pieces on a board. Say who will go where, uh, and the Pope of course is involved in this. And let's let's understand uh, a couple of things regarding the. The, the Pope uh, and, and the crowning because we, we have a lot of misconceptions out there. First of all, most of you are familiar, I imagine, with the very famous painting of Napoleon standing, holding a crown high off his head with his back to the Pope who, who looks a little put out uh, and Josephine is kneeling at his feet. Many people assume that that painting is Napoleon taking the crown out of the hands of the Pope and placing it on his own head. That's not what it is. 
that is actually Napoleon holding the crown high and about to symbolically place it on Josephine's head, crowning her as Empress of the French. It is true, however, that Napoleon took the crown from the Pope and placed it on his own head. And that is oftentimes considered the ultimate act of hubris, you know, and, and, uh, and oh, terrible old Napoleon did this, you know, what an arrogant, you know, so and so, uh, he must be. But the fact of the matter is, the Pope knew in advance that that was going to happen. This was a, a very important symbol that Napoleon, with the, with the support of the head of the religion, of the Pope, but not as a result of a particular action by the Pope. Well, Napoleon was going to become emperor on his own. Let's let's just uh, I mean clarify that though. I mean the uh, as you've explained before, the relationship between Pius the Seventh and Napoleon was fairly tenuous. I mean the um, you know the Pius the Sixth, his predecessor, had been imprisoned by the French. He had died, and uh, Napoleon hadn't allowed his body to be buried for quite some for for several weeks. Napoleon, um, you know, had a lot of uh, papal uh, treasures. And, and I think it's getting back to putting people into the mindset of this period of time. You know, we think of the Pope today as this lovely wizened old man who sits in uh, St. Peter's Cathedral and the papal states as, you know, being the size of a couple of football fields. But, you know, before the uh, integration of Italy, the unification of Italy, you have to remember that the Pope was a secular leader and a military leader that, that controlled, you know, a lot of territory throughout what we think of as Italy today, throughout Germany. He had armies. He was not just the uh, spiritual leader of the Catholic people that we think of the Pope as today. And, you know, they fought against that happening for a long time. So there was it was a there was a fairly tense relationship between the two of them. And in fact, a lot of the curia didn't want Pius to even go to the coronation, but he decided it was the right thing to do. And he wasn't really in a very powerful position. So whether he wanted Napoleon to crown himself or not, I don't think he really <laughs> I don't think he really had much choice in the matter. Oh no, uh, he he certainly did not. Although he had some leverage because it was pretty clear to him, I'm sure, and 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 legitimately so, that Napoleon felt that it was important that he participate. Uh, the 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 Pope, by the way, uh, however, you know, didn't get his way on very many things. For example, uh, Napoleon had to take an imperial oath. And one of the things in the imperial oath was that Napoleon had to, to swear to uphold religious liberties. Uh, well, this is, this is not going to go over well with the Pope. The Pope didn't even like the idea that there would be re- other religions to have liberties with. As far as the Pope was concerned, he wanted, he wanted to go back to where the only legitimate religion in, in, in France was the, was the Catholic religion. Uh, and of course, the the Pope was not going to uh, win on that one, and Napoleon would have been, you know, taken out and shot himself if he if he tried to bring back the Church as the only uh, religion. And so the 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 fact is that uh, the Pope participated in the first part of the session uh, of the coronation, uh, but left 
before uh, the imperial oath was taken because he wasn't going to have anything to do with that. On the other hand, and this is sort of a, an amusing little sidelight, the Pope did win on another issue. Uh, you, you may remember we, we talked about uh, uh, Napoleon and Josephine when they got married in, in, in March of 96. Uh, they were married uh, in a civil union. Okay, uh, they were married uh, by a, a public official, not in a religious ceremony. <clears throat> so, as far as the church was concerned, they weren't married, uh, and and the Pope really was uncomfortable uh, presiding over a ceremony with these these two guys, uh, the Gallagher guy, rather I should say, who were living in sin, uh, from his point of view. And so the 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 night before. Uh, they had Cardinal Joseph Fesch, who was Napoleon's uncle, uh, marry them in a private, quiet, little religious ceremony so that, uh, that they could stand before the Pope as having been married uh, in, in a Catholic ceremony by a cardinal, uh, no less, as opposed to a mere uh, priest. So that took care of that. Speaking of, of Josephine, by the way, she, she was a little nervous about this whole deal. Because she could really begin, I think, to see the handwriting on the wall. I'm convinced that Josephine understood that this was all being done to establish a dynasty. And you can't have a dynasty without an heir. And the, the preferred way of having that heir would be for the empress to give birth to a son. And as you rightfully point out, Cameron, this had not been happening. Uh, <clears throat> so, so she was a, a little bit nervous about that. Uh, another, another woman who was not really all that thrilled uh, about it, by the way, was Napoleon's mother, Letasia. Uh, we didn't really talk much about this, but I think I mentioned in passing at least that Josephine was extremely unpopular with, with uh, Napoleon's family. They did not like her. They thought that Napoleon was had married down. And Napoleon's siblings sort of put up with it because, among other things, they were anticipating uh, getting a lot of uh, benefit, particularly from uh, having uh, an emperor in the family. And indeed, uh, parenthetically here, uh, his sisters and brothers were were fighting with each other and, and pleading and cajoling and arguing with Napoleon on who should get what titles. You know, oh, hey, why does so-and-so get a higher title than I do? Why is she a queen? I'm a princess, etc., etc. There was a lot of this stuff, you know, Napoleon must have wished he had, he could just dump all of them into the Seine, I think, uh, because they were they were becoming a real pain in the butt. And by the way, with rare exception, Napoleon's family let him down throughout his career. But what I was getting to is his mother. His mother refused to uh, attend the ceremony. She stayed home, and. Napoleon, nevertheless, gave her a, a formal imperial title by which she is frequently referred, even today, as a Madame Mère, uh, Madame Mère, M-E-R-E, <clears throat> which literally means Madame Mother, uh, since Mère is mother, uh, but this was her uh, imperial 
title. And if you look at that same very famous painting uh, by Jacques-Louis David, you will see in the center, <clears throat> in a stand high up looking over the ceremony, Madame Mare. She was placed by Jacques-Louis David into the coronation ceremony, even though she, in fact, was not there. Uh, and by the way, <coughs> the sisters of Napoleon were most livid when they discovered that they had to carry uh, Josephine's train as she came in a long gown. And, and they were not at all happy that they were going to have to do that. But do what they did. On December the 2nd of 1804, uh, huge crowds all over uh, the city. Uh, Napoleon uh, and Josephine uh, ride uh, through the city escorted by horsemen in bright, shiny, flashy uniforms, the, the crossier uh, with, with their crosses polished to the point of blinding people, I imagine. Most of you have seen Napoleon and Josephine's coronation outfits. Uh, there's a couple of crowns that are involved. One is the more traditional looking crown that you, that you see Napoleon holding over Josephine's head. Uh, he also is, is given, uh, a, a, a wreath crown, uh, reminiscent of those of the Caesars. Back, back to your, your Caesar, uh, analogy again. He is crowned Napoleon the first emperor of the French. Uh, later on, he be also uh, becomes uh, king of Italy uh, and protector of the Confederation of Rhine. So if you're truly going to drink a toast to Napoleon, it's to Napoleon the first emperor of the French, king of Italy, and protector of the Confederation of the Rhine. Uh, the people are delighted. He upholds, he swears to uphold uh, religious liberties. He swears to rule, quote, only in the interests of the happiness and glory of the French people. Uh, and uh, we're going to see as we go through this, he's going to be more involved in French glory uh, uh, than he is in French happiness, uh, largely because of the wars that uh, he is expected to uh, to fight. But for now, at least, everything is going uh, his way. And Napoleon is said to have whispered into his brother Joseph's ear, "If only our father could see us now." And Carlo, who who really was into this kind of stuff, probably would have loved it. But Letitia uh, was was not so pleased. And later on, uh, referring to all of this, she says, "If only this will all last." The clear implication being that she saw from the beginning that that this might be a step in the in the wrong direction. Uh, it's hard to say uh, what she thought, but uh, the fact of the matter is, as of the second of December, eighteen o four, things were looking pretty doggone good for Napoleon. Can you explain in a little bit more detail why Letitia didn't attend? I, I, I've always found it extremely amusing that Napoleon could. You know, uh, get uh, kings of Europe to fulfill his bidding and generals of armies, but he couldn't get his own mother to turn up to his wedding, which says a lot about Letitia, who's obviously remembered as a very, very strong matriarch. 
and uh, and he obviously has a very close relationship with her throughout his lifetime. But what was her main? It was, was it just because she didn't like Josephine, or she didn't like the idea of him becoming emperor? What what was her rationale? Well, I think it was probably a little of each, but I, I think it was more the Josephine thing. She she just didn't like Josephine. She I don't think she liked the idea that Josephine was was going to be but such a center what, of attention. What kind of mother doesn't attend the ceremony where her son becomes emperor? I mean, to me, I, you know, if, if well, I'll, I'll tell you. what I thought of somebody one of my kids was marrying, if they were becoming emperor, I'm pretty sure I'd go, oh, you know what, I'll come along. It's, to me, it's mind-boggling. Well, well, it is, uh, and and I'll be honest. I mean, I've not read you know e- e- enormous tomes on this. Uh, it's well, possible I've never that I'm missing much about it at all. Yeah. I've, I've never yeah. heard anyone explain it in any great detail. It's always been one of the great mysteries to me. Well, I think I think really, Cameron, it becomes you know I think most people can understand that mothers can be very strong-willed sometimes. <laughs> I know my my mother, bless her, who's been dead for many 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 years, but she can be very strong-willed, and I remember both as a child and as an adult, although I was a very, very young adult when she passed away, that if she made up her mind to do something or not to do something, uh, that was it, folks, and don't even bother (laughs) making an effort to change that, Uh, and and I think that's really, you know, I think she just decided that she wasn't going to do it, and by golly, that was it. I think she also understood that that there was going to be a lot of infighting with the kids. Uh, and you know, a lot of mothers really don't want to be in a situation where they have to listen to their kids bickering. And, you know, these were like little school kids. Uh, trust me, I know about that. Uh, you know, the, 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 the siblings of Napoleon, the brothers, and especially the sisters, were like little kids, you know, fighting over cookies. Uh, and, and, uh, don't get there was, you started on the yeah. siblings, man. Yeah. The siblings just make, I just, I, I just want, wish he'd taken them all out and had them all shot sometimes. Well, I told you I, uh, a while ago, I think he'd have probably been happy <laughs> in a lot of ways if he could have just dumped them into the sin. Although, you can just he, imagine how disappointed a man like oh. this must have been. Oh, and, yes. And, and when you read his letters, and anyone who's interested in the subject and hasn't done, I highly recommend you, know, you read a lot of his uh, letters to his brothers uh, over the years, There's several great collections, where he is, you know, after he has made them, the heads of, you know, various countries, the King of Westphalia, etc. And he is just disgusted with how poorly they are carrying on their, you know, duties as the monarchs of these countries. And he just tears them to shreds, letter after letter after letter. And they just seem to be incapable. They're like, oh, yeah, that's just, you know brother Napoleon. <laughs> well, well sure. Insane. Well, it does, and I'm sure it drove him insane. Not to, to be fair, uh, he would make them a king, and then, and then sometimes if, if they dared to do anything that was at all different than what he, Napoleon, thought they should do, he would, he would, uh, you know, tear them up, and, and, and sometimes I'm not so sure he shouldn't have just let them, you know, rule with a little bit more leeway, and, and he got involved in some of their personal life, uh, maybe more than, than he should have, because because he saw them to some extent as tools. He saw them as ways 
to extend his power uh, through his family. So in a sense... He must have realized that they would be nowhere without him. I mean... <laughs> well, that's right. Well, that's right. the guy this making is, it all happen, so they this is, shut up and do what he tells them to do. You know? This, this. Well, you're exactly right, of course. This is the other side of the coin. On the one side, maybe maybe Napoleon, the, 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 the patre of the family at this point, even though he's not the oldest, uh, could have eased up a little bit. On the other hand, come on, guys, do you think you would be a, a king? Do you think you would be a princess uh, or a queen if, if it wasn't for Napoleon? So, you know, maybe you ought to uh, uh, do a little bit more along what he would like. Uh, an, old, an old friend of mine uh, uh, has called them, uh, I, what's the term he used, uh, gilded uh, millstones or something like that. I mean, they were, they were around his neck. Uh, and, 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 and to a certain extent, they, they drug him down. And, and sometimes Napoleon had some blame, like many years later in, in Spain when he's got Joseph on the throne. Uh, he, he, he mistreats Joseph a little bit in ways that he definitely shouldn't have done. On the other hand, here's Joseph in a very, very important position, and he can't even bring marshals who are bickering like children over cookies under control. Here he is, the king, and he's got these marshals who have no respect for him at all, uh, and, and, and he can't keep them under control, and that screws things up in, 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 in Spain to some extent. So, yeah, the, 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 the siblings are, are less uh, than they could have been. There's no question about that. I also want to talk briefly about that famous painting of the coronation that you mentioned by Jacques-Louis David. Um, I've seen two copies of that. I'm not sure if there are more. There's, there's, and uh, people have never seen this in real life, uh, and you get a chance, if you go to Paris, you have to see this because they are massive. These coronation paintings are the size of a wall of a house. Probably not size of a wall of one of David's house, but of, <laughs> of, your, of your average house. That's true. They, they, they would be, it would dwarf my house. <laughs> <laughs> These are massive, massive mind-boggling paintings. And there's one in the Louvre, and then there, I think there's also one in Versailles. I'm or is it? Tr- I think it's Versailles. It's I'm Versailles trying to think. You you you've caught me off guard here. It was very common to make to make more than one copy of a, of, of a painting. The famous one of Napoleon crossing the Alps. You'll recall there are four of them. There are other images uh, in my Napoleon for Dummies book. I reproduce an engraving that I have uh, that actually shows Napoleon crowning himself. So there were images, and I do not recall offhand who who did that engraving. Uh, it looks a little bit like the the coronation scene by David, but it's different, and it actually does show Napoleon crowning himself. Uh, so you know that that aspect of the coronation was was uh, uh, recorded dutifully by by artists. Uh, but you're right about the paintings and 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 uh, a couple of comments. So first of all, these paintings are often on a truly grand scale. Uh, and, and for you to say a wall of a house and someone's thinking, yeah, right, whatever. Uh, well, if not a wall of a house, certainly a wall of a pretty doggone good-sized room, like somebody's living room or something. Uh, 
I'd have to get the measurements somewhere, and I'm lousy at, at estimating measurements. But the, I wouldn't doubt that it was, you know, 15 feet wide and and 10 feet tall. Uh, I really wouldn't doubt that a bit. It's huge, and there are others like that. Even the 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 painting of the pulling cross in the Alps is 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 going to fill. Uh, I mean, it's about the only thing you'd want on your wall, and you'd have to have a a very high vaulted ceiling to make it work. I mean, they're enormous. But you know, you talk about my house. You know, like like you know about my house. Well, I know but, that you've got. But I'm now you've got a chance to do it. See, uh, I, I, for those of you who who haven't been paying attention. Here, uh, Cameron has now come to the United States for some period of time, and he's he's in San Francisco right now, or he's in Carmel now. But we're going to be in San Francisco together, and and, and a week from this coming Sunday, we're we're going to try to do a uh, uh, a little uh, session uh, with the two of us looking right in each other's eyes for the first time. And I want to tell you, Cameron, it's going to be just a wonderful delight to have a chance to meet you in person. Uh, I've seen pictures. Uh, this guy is on the cover of a magazine recently, and he he looks like, uh, you know, if, 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 if you know, put the, keep the women and children off the streets. Here comes this this handsome dude with the sunglasses, uh, and he, he's a killer. Uh, but, you know, San Francisco, Cameron, is only a two-hour uh, flight from from Seattle, and I will pick you up at the airport and have you come and 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 experience my humble abode and my collection. And I would be so pleased if it worked out somehow that you could come. And I'm not trying; I'm teasing you a little bit. I'm not trying to put you on the spot, other than to say I do hope you come up here and and visit me. But the main thing is, I just want to say how how much I'm looking forward to to seeing you in person, up close and personal, as they say. Thank you, David. I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to it as well. Now, before we before we finish on the painting, though, I do have the dimensions in front of me. It is uh, 6.1 meters by 9.31 meters. Well, six meters would be a, a pretty doggone close to 20 feet. So I was I was about right on target there. Yeah, and I know that your house has an entire Napoleonic museum in it, so I know it's a it's a fairly decent sized house. That's not bad. I, I'm, I'm I'm I don't want to be falsely modest, but you would have a hard time finding a wall. Uh, in fact, there's one wall where, in theory, you could put it, but you know, uh, we don't have a house that would take a, a, a painting like that, and nor does much of anyone else. I think Versailles and the Louvre are are just about the right scale for for paintings like that. However, if the French government ever wants to get rid of it, uh, I'd be willing to build a new wing onto the house uh, <laughs> just for that just for that painting. Now, just a couple of things, uh, and I'm, I'm incredibly amused. Just to all the listeners, when David and I were chatting before the show about the topic for this show, and I suggested the the uh, coronation, he said, "Well, it'll be a pretty short show if we just do the coronation. We could probably look at doing Austerlitz and a few other things." And I, I, was, I didn't say anything, but I was thinking to myself, uh, it "Must be a while since we've done one." David forgets that we yes, can yeah. use up any amount of time that's given to us to talk about any subject about Napoleon. Yeah, we're we're at about fifty-four minutes uh, and counting right now of the actual show. It looks like so. Yeah. Yes. So just I think we'll we'll skip Austerlitz for now. I think so. We might do that when we get together. But um, just a couple of final things. There was obviously a lot of people uh, who weren't happy, apart from Madame Mayor, with the coronation. 
I know that uh, several of the generals didn't uh, attend the coronation. There was a lot of uh, back chat uh, coming through the ranks. Of course, um, people like, not a French citizen, but uh, uh, no, no less a fan of the emperor up until this point, Ludwig van Beethoven had uh, already dedicated his third symphony to uh, Napoleon. I think it was going to be called the, the Emperor Concerto, or the Emperor Symphony, and then uh, he was so disappointed with the fact that Napoleon had made himself emperor that he changed the title of it to the Sinfonia Eroica, uh, composed to celebrate the memory of a great man, the Hero Symphony. So, and uh, there was also people like Madame de Stael. I think this is when Madame de Stael left uh, France. Uh, I'm not sure if she was ushered out or if she left in disgust. But there were, there were a number of intellectuals and, and generals who weren't happy with this turn of events. Well, sure. Uh, well, what a surprise. Uh, there's a lot of people when, when uh, you know, George Bush was, was, was elected who, who, who weren't happy with that turn of events. And before then, when, when Bill Clinton was elected, there were some people who were not happy. Uh, not everybody liked Napoleon. Not everybody liked the idea of, of, of a Republican emperor. Uh, I, I think that some, some folks worried that, that somehow this was betraying the revolution. I, I think they were short-sighted. I think they... They should have realized that this was being taken uh, to preserve the revolution, uh, and and uh, uh, you know it ultimately didn't work. But I don't think that that we can use the the results of this thing to negate the fact that that's really to a large extent uh, what was going on. Nevertheless, sure, the the purists of the Republicans. Uh, the purists of the Republican supporters of the of the revolution, kind of the opposite of American Republicans, uh, would would not like it. And and as you say, a few intellectuals. I have read that there's some controversy about whether or not Beethoven truly, uh, you know, tore this thing up or scratched it out and so forth and so on as a result of the of of, of, of Napoleon's actions. I'd like to look into that a little bit more, but that's that's the general uh, feeling about that. That's what the <clears throat> that's what the history books say right now, and and fair enough. You know, I can understand why people would say, wait a minute, uh, what's the real difference between an emperor and a king? Do we really want to have all this, all of this, uh, imperial court business, you know? Uh, and I mean, I remember when, when Richard Nixon started talking about having the, the guards at the White House dress in, in really, really spiffy, uh, outfits, you know, uh, with, with shiny helmets and so forth and so on. Uh, that that idea got scotched. This is back, I suppose, in the 70s. This, the idea got scotched uh, because it was too imperial. It was it was going to make us look too much like a monarchy. Even even having fancy, you know, uniforms for guards at the White House. So, you know, because it wasn't, it would it would be a betrayal of the America's heritage as as a republic and so sure I'm to a lot of people I think a minority a very small minority uh, of intellectuals uh, and uh, intellectuals and other malcontents uh, although I I'm, I'm, I would like to think I would relate to the intellectuals uh, you know who, who saw this as a betrayal they were wrong uh, they should have supported it most of them did uh, Madame de Stael uh, 
was, was from what I've read was quite frankly a pain in the butt, uh, and, and just, just loved to harass Napoleon about all sorts of things. Well, she had been uh, a supporter though early on. Yes, that she had. She had, but, but that, but that changed. But her motivations uh, for changing too, I've always been suspect about. I, I, I have read a number of accounts that said that she, uh, tried to link herself romantically to Napoleon and when he rebuffed her, uh, because he had no time for her, she decided to uh, use her literary skills to get revenge. Well, and that may be. And, and I'm, again, I, I, I sometimes disillusion my students when I tell them, you know, I cannot promise you to have an answer for every question you asked. And, <laughs> oh, and David. While, while I will confess to being perhaps more knowledgeable than the average person on, on Napoleonic topics, uh, I would be foolish to suggest to you or to anyone that, that I have an answer to every topic that might uh, come up in a discussion on Napoleon. And Madame de Stael's uh, precise motivations, I don't know. Uh, you know, Napoleon is oftentimes criticized for for being uh, you know, kind of a sexist pig, by, particularly because of an answer he gave to at a ball. Uh, Madame de Stael is said to have asked him, you know, who was the finest woman in France, you know? And, and Napoleon uh, said, uh, the one who has the most children. And, and this outraged de Stael, and, and it's sometimes used as a quote to show that Napoleon uh, was, was anti-woman. Well, then you read the accounts by people who were there, and you find out that this woman kept pestering him and pestering him, and wouldn't, wouldn't leave him alone, kept falling around on the, on, on, on the ball, you know, and, and finally she asked that question, and, and, and is, is my interpretation from what I've read is that he said it to get her off his back, you know, he was, he was just kind of giving her a hard time. He gave her the answer she knew she would hate the most, which was, well, of course, the one who has the most kids, and not meaning it to be a serious response, but, but just trying to get rid of her. And yet, here it is, carried down through history as an example of, of Napoleon's uh, uh, lack of respect for women and intellectual women and, and, and the independence of women and so forth, when in fact that was simply not the case. So, De Stael is, is, is uh, an interesting person. Uh, but as to her motivations uh, and her effect on Napoleon, you know, I don't know. And whilst I'll never suggest that Napoleon was a sensitive New Age guy and in touch with his feminine side, you know, you just have to look at his the the uh, respect uh, uh, that he had for his mother. You know, coming again from a Corsican background, you know, a society that really respected the matriarch of the family. And he, you know, was always very, very respectful to his mother and, uh, you know, was uh, in, in some ways not a, not a mummy's boy, but, you know, was, was very deferential to his mother as the head of the family. So, um, you know, I, I think there are lots of different sides to the story. Very differ- def- def- deferential, uh, very respectful. Uh, on on, on Saint-Hélène, many, many years later, uh, he, he's writing that she deserves the, the, the greatest veneration. You know, uh, uh, he, he's, he's, as you say, he's no mama's boy, but he is very respectful of his family and particularly of his mother. He recognized that she was a very strong-willed woman, and he very much respected her for that. And, of course, um, while we're just talking about her, she did outlive him by, you know, uh, 15 uh, to 11 years. Uh, no, 15 years. He died in 1821. She died in 1836. 
Yeah, you, in Rome, and, and, in, and in fact, you can go down to, to Rome, and you can see uh, uh, the, the house where she lived, and, and looking out over a small uh, uh, piazza, there, there, there's the balcony where, where she would stand and wave to uh, well-wishers. Uh, she was very popular, uh, venerated, one might say, uh, by the people there, and, and uh, you know, lived a, a, a comfortable, I mean, the, the, the Bonapartes had, by then had, had family money, and, and and no one was going to bother her. No one was going to try to, you know, throw her into prison or exile her or whatever. So she she lived there in in in, uh, in Rome and and uh, did did quite well. You know, just wrapping up, um, I'm looking at a bit of a biography on her, and you know, I, I haven't read any books specifically on her, but obviously she she plays a large role in Napoleon's life. But if you just look at her biography, she was born in 1750. Uh, was married. Uh, she was born in Ajaccio in Corsica. She got married at 14 to Carlo. She bore him 13 children, eight of whom survived infancy. Uh, during her lifetime, then obviously she and the family were kicked out of Corsica after you know the Napoleon and, and Joseph and these guys ran afoul of Paolo. Uh, oh yeah, they the Salisetti days. And then she she lived to see. Her, you know, uh, her son Napoleon become, you know, the, the the leader of Europe, the emperor of the French. The rest of her children become kings and queens and princesses and duchesses. And then to see it all fall apart and dissolve, her son die in exile in Saint Eleanor, and then she lived, as you say, another fifteen years in Rome. I mean, what an amazing uh, life she must have led. Uh, and she was obviously, you know, very. Uh, it, it, all of the accounts of her is that she was very frugal. As was Napoleon, and you know, part of his anger against his siblings and Josephine was, you know, ha- ha- what spendthrifts they were. But Madame Mare was always very, very frugal with her money. It was not glamorous, frowned upon, spendthrift behaviour, as did Napoleon, in in most cases. So oh, absolutely! She was an she was an incredible woman. I mean, and, and you know, you're, you're right; she was incredible, uh, and and we we. If we want to know about Napoleon, we have to know about Madame, uh, Madame Mare. Uh, and you mentioned her being frugal. Of course, that's one of the things she held against Josephine because as far as she was concerned, and rightfully so, Napoleon, who comes from a frugal background and a poor background, uh, you know, and marries a spendthrift. Mary's a woman of loose morals who spends money like water. So you can, you can understand why uh, Letasia would not be uh, real thrilled. I, I agree to go back to your earlier comment. You, you'd think that she could have overcome that maybe for, for her son's coronation. Uh, but, but she didn't because she was strong-willed and, and Napoleon, Napoleon couldn't complain too much because he admired her strong will. Well, if you admire my strong will, you better be willing to admire my willingness to express that strong will, even sometimes in ways that you don't want it expressed. Absolutely. Well, David, it's been uh, it's been an absolute thrill as always to do the show with you. You know, whenever people ask me about why people do podcasts, I always t- uh, you know I always talk about this. I say, you know, it, it, podcasting for me has given me the opportunity to speak to David Markham uh, once a month about one of my favourite subjects, and 
If podcasting gave me nothing else, the ability to talk to you about this once a month would make it all worthwhile. It's an absolute joy. I know, and, and I know the audience enjoys it. And from the emails and the comments that we get from the thousands and thousands of listeners that we have coming in today, I just want to, um, on behalf of David and myself, genuinely thank you for, for listening to the show, giving us all the support. There are lots of things that you could be doing with this hour. The fact that you're taking that time to listen to our show and learn a little bit more about Napoleon, I, I genuinely appreciate. Well, I, I appreciate it too. Uh, the, the the chance to have 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 met you uh, and uh, the, had a chance to talk with with Napoleon uh, with someone who was uh, as as interested and knowledgeable as you are. Uh, I, I have a slight request to make or a suggestion. If you can if you can do it, uh, you know, legally, and I, I don't know uh, if you could, you know. Put that uh, that picture, particularly the interior picture, but the cover picture as well, uh, on our website. If it's not there already, uh, I think our folks would 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 enjoy seeing uh, the picture of you on the cover of what I understand is the equivalent of Newsweek magazine. For those of you in America or, or, or who elsewhere who are familiar with Newsweek, that's a pretty big publication. And I'm not going to embarrass you by telling the people what the cover. Says. Says, uh, but but I find it fascinating, and and I, I think it's 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 great fun. Uh, however, it works out, it's great fun, and and it's going to be one of the highlights of of my Napoleonic career, without any question. <laughs> Well, thank you, David. I think I'll decline the opportunity to put that picture up. I'll put a picture up of the coronation painting, I think, instead. <laughs> All, right, All right, folks. All right, folks. I may you email me. I may I may send send you the URL myself. I th- I'm I, I showed I showed that to my wife, and she just smiled. <laughs> All right, let's wrap it up, David. Um, we'll uh, hopefully have another show ready for you soon, folks. Thanks again, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Bye bye. Take care. Yeah. Hey.